They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 22 An Unexpected Discovery When we left things at the end of the last episode, I went away with some homework to do. And that homework involved some of the places that featured in the recollections of John Bisbaum. And in particular, a man who used to sit at the bar of a couple of these places alone, talking to no one. John had recalled seeing this man in the stable bar, which is part of the Queen's Hotel in Burton, and also at the jazz club at the Barley Mow in Stapen Hill. The thing that John particularly remembered about this man was that he wore pink and yellow socks. Now, there's nothing particularly significant in that in itself, but that just happens to be the colour of the socks reputed to be worn by the victim, the only item of clothing found with the body. Coincidence? Probably. But intriguing? Definitely. The third place that John had mentioned was the Sump, the Royal Oak, the pub just down from Greensmith's Mill. In fact, directly over the river channel from the deposition site. John recalled a man, now that may be Matthew James Jackson, being ejected from that pub around that time. And rumours were circulating about those cottages 126 and 127 Newton Road, which are just about 100 yards away from the pub. It seemed things were happening in those cottages that maybe shouldn't have been happening. So that's what I've been doing for the majority of the last few weeks. But as we'll find out in this podcast, indirectly, this process led me somewhere else. And I found out some information about the investigation that I'd never heard before. It's not in the book. In fact, I don't think anybody really remembers this, but it could be significant. And that's a very interesting new development in the story. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I started with the stable bar. But where do you start? How do you begin to find people who used to go to a pub 50 years ago? Well, fortunately, I've made a few contacts through this investigation that might be able to help. Kim McBeth, who helps a great deal with this investigation, also happens to run a very popular Facebook group called On Memory Corner, with over 10,000 members. Now that Facebook group is dedicated to memories of Burton-upon-Trent in the past, before the town planners got their hands on it. So in fact, the perfect place to try and reach people who may have memories of the stable bar. So I posted a message on there, explaining the background, what I was doing, and inviting people to contact me. 
and it turned up trumps. I received a lot of replies. And a few people suggested another Facebook group I should post on, something called the 76 Club. Now the 76 Club was a music club in Burton with very similar clientele to the stable bar. If you went to the 76 Club around the end of the 1960s, there's a very good chance you went to the stable bar. So I also posted on there. So before long, I had about six people to talk to about their time in the stable bar at the end of the 1960s. A very promising start. So I set about interviewing as many people as I could. I started from a lead I received on Facebook about the lady who ran the bar. Now there was some debate on Facebook about some of the details, what her name was and what her nationality was. Some said she was Polish and her name was Phyllis. Others that she was French and she was called Odette. But what everyone did remember was that if you got on the wrong side of her, you are likely to be sprayed with a soda siphon. Anyone getting out of hand ended up with a good soaking. So she's a memorable character. And it seems the bar was pretty much always full. Dartboard and jukebox at one end. I started by talking to a man called Rod Davis who used to work as a chef at the Queen's Hotel. Now, his recollections were a bit later than my target date of 1968 to 1970, but his recollections of the Queen's Hotel was really useful. And he was able to solve the first part of the problem. What was the name of the woman with the lethal soda siphon who ran the bar? Her name, it turns out, was Odette. Odette Fornge and she was French. Now, Odette is important because if this man that we're seeking used to sit at the bar silently, it's likely that the only person he had any interaction with whatsoever was Odette. So I needed to find Odette. But that wasn't gonna be an easy task. I looked at the births, marriages and deaths and I was able to find that Odette Fornge had married someone called Fred, Fred Fornge, no relation to the Fred that we're looking for. And they had a daughter called Georgina. Now I couldn't find any traceable information for Odette, but I could find Georgina. So I sent Georgina a Facebook message in the hope she'd see it and get back to me. And she did, and we arranged to have a telephone conversation. And she explained, Odette, sadly, died a few years ago. Fred's still around. I asked Georgina about her mother's time at the stable bar, and in particular, whether she remembered anyone that used to sit at the bar and never speak. And Georgina said she actually does have a vague recollection that her mother mentioned someone like that. Now, Georgina was quite young at the time, and it's a long, long time ago. But that's interesting because she had a vague memory that that might be true. And that's interesting for me because it's a second party confirmation of what John had said. Now, sadly, she couldn't tell me any more than that. But after 50 years, even that fragment is useful to know. 
The other conversations yielded a lot of context about the bar at the end of the 1960s, and it seems that the stable bar was quite the place to go to around then. If you enjoyed the more progressive rock music of the day, had maybe fashionably long hair, and possibly enjoyed the occasional herbal product, you'd gone to the right place. Thing is, in that company, this man should have stood out. But no one I spoke to could really help me identify who that man was. He didn't trigger any memories in the people that I spoke with. But let's not give up hope on this because this is a work in progress. People are still reaching out to other people that I can't reach out to. So we may well find out far more in the coming weeks. But there was one other interesting memory and that involved Americans in the bar or certainly Americans in the Queen's Hotel. American GIs were stationed at RAF Fold about eight miles from Burton on their way back from Vietnam so these guys were probably not in a great place mentally. RAF Fold itself is a very interesting place in the end of the Second World War on the 27th of November 1944 it exploded. The ammunition dump at RAF Fold exploded in one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history. So it's an interesting place and it was unused until the late 60s because of its dangerous condition. But at the end of the 60s it was given over to the American Air Force and they stationed people coming back from Vietnam at RAF Fold quite near to Burton and occasionally Americans came to Burton from fold and it seems that they went to the restaurant of the queens rather than the stable bar but they were around now the slightly weird aspect of that is that do you remember the interview in episode 16 with the scenes of crimes officer i remember the almost the very first question i asked him was what were your first thoughts when starting to dig out the body he said i thought it was an american now, I never really got a proper answer to why he thought that, but he definitely did think that. And that's a very strange coincidence. Might be nothing, might be something, but there were Americans around in 1969. Now, as you know, I've also been in contact with people from both the Sump and the Jazz Club, but I want to leave that to the next episode for two reasons. Firstly, there's a few more people to talk to until I get a clearer picture of both of those places. And secondly, there's something else I want to tell you about, which is not really connected to this, but this part of the investigation led me there. So let me explain what I'm on about. In the last episode, we talked a lot about the colour of the socks, the colour of the socks the man was wearing, the colour of the socks that was on the body. I came to the conclusion that we should go with what the scenes of crimes officer said, that they were yellow and pink. But something was still nagging away at me about that. Why was it so difficult to be sure about the colour of the socks, when it should be absolutely definitive? Now, I don't have access to the police files, so how could I verify the sock colour. Well, the best way would be to revisit all of the original police reports in the Burton Mail 
on the case to see if any mention was made of the colour of the socks in the earliest reporting of the case. So from the discovery of the body and the few months after, the earlier the better. Surely, if the socks were so important to the case, remember the only item of clothing, it must be in the original reporting. So off to the magic attic again I went and surrounded myself with all these newspapers from the date of the original discovery of the body and over the next few years and got to work. And I'm really glad I did because I found something in those reports that I'd never seen before. Something that's not in the book, something I've never ever heard mentioned again, and I suspect everyone has forgotten. But it's really, really intriguing. But back to the socks. In the first four lengthy descriptions of the body actually being found in the days after the discovery, and these are half a page or quarter of a page in length, no mention is made of the socks at all. Nothing. As if they were never there. Which is really strange because it's the only item of clothing. But they don't mention it for weeks and weeks and weeks. The first mention of the socks at all comes in June 1971, nearly three months later. No mention of the colour is given. After that, there's very little coverage of the case in the Burton Mail at all. And if it's not in the Burton Mail, it's nowhere else either. And given the rarity of murders in Burton in 1971, that itself is a bit odd. In fact, the next report on the case comes at the time of the first inquest, which opens on November the 6th, 1973. Two and a half years later, the socks are mentioned again, but no colour is given. It does say that they were made in Leicester, they were widely distributed, including a stall on Burton Market. But that doesn't mean they were bought in Burton. They were sold all over the place. And the final, the very final report on this whole case is from the final inquest in 1974. It records that an open verdict was reached, but doesn't mention the evidence at all. In fact, I suppose the best description of the socks we ever get is from that TV report that we mentioned in the last episode. That's from 1971, autumn 1971, about six months after the body was found. They talk about them, they show them. You know the thing they don't do? They don't mention the colour. No one from the police in any of the reporting on the TV or in the papers ever mentions the colour of the one item of clothing found with the body. That's weird. But that wasn't the most surprising thing I found on that trip to the Magic Attic. That was something very surprising in the report of June 1971. Something I wasn't expecting. Thanks for downloading the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the investigation as much as I am. If you're a newcomer to the podcast, a very warm welcome. We're very pleased to welcome you aboard. If you're not a member of Neil DeVille's excellent Facebook page, Who is Fred the Head, which now I think has well over 700 members, you're missing out. 
there's a very good community of people there asking some very intriguing questions and it's a great place to throw ideas around as always please share the podcast with all your friends the more people who know about the podcast the more people that listen the more chance we have of getting that key breakthrough now a couple of weeks ago I did a walk around the various sites that we talk about in the podcast and that's now up on YouTube and it's been there for a couple of weeks and you'll find it on the Facebook page and it's been viewed now uh, I think over 350 times and it's probably quite an important film and a big shout out to Will Smith no not that one and Nick Britton for the footage and we were able to splice together the footage that we took a couple of weeks ago and some of the old footage that was taken around two years ago actually on the 48th anniversary of Fred being found so that was early 2019 now the reason we spliced it together was to make sure there was just one film showing everything but it becomes important now because it's probably the last footage that anyone will ever take of the actual deposition site because the site is now closed fenced off completely unavailable to the general public the people who own that land don't want the public to go there and it's their land we've got to respect that they decide who goes on that land but the film does show you the exact deposition site so it's useful for that and how it all fits together with everything else so it is a great way to familiarize yourself with the geography and how the various places of interest in the story all fit together anyway i hope you enjoy that but we need to get back to something so what did i find in that report that was so surprising well the best thing i can do i think is read you that report and the reveal comes really early so listen carefully so the headline Burton Riverside Body Mystery Australian Police Asked to Help Australian Police are cooperating with the Staffordshire and Stoke-on-Trent Constabulary in an effort to establish the identity of a young man whose body was recovered from a riverside grave at Burton ten weeks ago. The request for help came from the police authorities down under and was made by the head of the Staffordshire and Stoke-on-Trent CID, Detective Chief Superintendent Harold Wright, through Interpol. We received information that the dental work on the teeth of the dead man correspond with that done in Australia on a man who had emigrated from this country, he told the Burton Daily Mail today. We want this information checked out to establish whether or not the man is still in Australia, or if he's returned to this country, the chief superintendent added. Now, from there, it goes on to talk about other things that we already know. That's the important stuff. So why am I getting so excited about this? What's so important about that? Well, firstly, new information on a 50-year-old case is always interesting, but I've never heard of an Australian connection in relation to the police inquiry at all and I don't suspect anybody else listening to this podcast has either it's not in the book it's not anywhere else and isn't it weird how our investigation took us to Australia 
through a completely different route. We were looking for a Hungarian man based on the skull. But it seems that the police suspected an Australian connection from virtually the very start. And that's odd, isn't it? Because in a case that's essentially a local murder, less than 10 weeks into that investigation, detectives already think there's a connection to the other side of the world. So let's break this down a bit. It seems the link the police are referring to is dentistry. And I thought they never got a match on dentistry. But they thought, it seems, that the dentistry was done in Australia, which also explains why they couldn't find a match in the UK. But more than that, they say they received information that the dental work of the dead man corresponds, i.e. matches, with that done in Australia on a man who had emigrated from this country. Which means they must have a name. They must at that stage have had a name for a man whose teeth matched Fred's and they know he emigrated. And they're thinking, if he came back, he's Fred. Now, you're already probably one step ahead of me because we know someone that emigrated to Australia. Frank Kuhn. Was that the person the police had connected? But we also know that the body isn't Frank. At least, I'm 99% sure it isn't. So was it another person? Someone else who'd gone to Australia from Burton, whose teeth matched? Now the thing is, I don't know Frank's dentistry. But I know someone who might do. How are you? I'm good, Zoe. How are you? Oh, can't complain. Long time no speak. I, I was just thinking the same thing. How odd. I wanted to have a quick chat with you about something. Is it convenient? No problem. Bless you. How's things in Australia? Everything uh, back to normal now after COVID and things? Well, I guess um, we, we haven't had any, um, any new outbreaks. We've got 13 cases in, in Queensland at the moment. Okay, we've got 13 cases down our street probably. I mean, lots of people seem to have it, but wow. very few people are getting seriously ill now though. Couple anyway, th what was it you called me about? A couple of things. Firstly, do you remember a lady called Rita Barondi? Not that I can think of. She was your dance teacher. Ah, is that why it sounds sort of a little bit familiar? Rita, She's yes of course, it's the Rita part. Yeah, she's still Obviously, around. Yeah, she was she was Madame Rita, Mademoiselle Rita, it might have been, because they all they all assume assume a, a, a French style when they're teaching ballet. Well, at least they used to back in the sixties. Oh, well, she remembers you. I was talking to her about something completely different, to be honest, and she said, "Oh, I used to teach teach ballet," and we were talking about. I was just talking about people that I'd spoken to in in the context of of this kind of investigation, really. She said, you know, she remembered you and she remembered your dad and she remembers your mum and things like this. She said she, uh, they used to have little soirees in the evening, which uh, your mum and dad used to go to. I think when you, you, you were probably being babysat by someone. No, she, so she remembers you very fondly. She said she's still chatty, chatty little girl. So she's not a little girl anymore, but she's still chatty. I definitely know that. 
So uh, now she remembers you very fondly, but uh, I just thought I'd mention that. That's not the real reason I rang you, but... Well, I, I did ballet from, from two till eight, so I've been for six years. You're right, okay, okay. And she had the school in Burton, didn't she, I think? That's right, yes. But she married a Hungarian, you know. She wasn't, she wasn't, uh, she wasn't Hungarian, but she married a Hungarian. No, uh, she married, married one, yeah. I, th- I think my dad knew him quite well. Istvan, I think his name was, Istvan Barondi. But he wasn't from Burton, he was up from Chesterfield. You know when you went to Australia, did you know people who were already in Australia before you went? Um, only the sister of my aunt by marriage and her husband. We didn't know them, but we, you know, we, we knew that we were connected to them and we contacted them when we got here. Okay. Um, but they, but they were the only only people that that we seem to know. I, they they originally lived in England as well. And they emigrated. Okay. Um, probably eight or ten years before. Okay. Okay. So, so no, I, I, I don't I don't think there was uh, there were other people like the Stones who who came out afterwards that we knew from England. Yeah. But no nobody else that we knew before that. At least not that I'm aware of. Right, right. Because what I, what I was re- really asking is, is, you know, the idea of going to Australia was not prompted by someone else you knew being out there or anything like that. No, um, we actually applied for South Africa, Ca- Canada, and Australia, and Australia came through first. Okay, that's why you ask? I'll tell you why I ask. It's an odd one. I went to a place which you'd probably enjoy. Uh, a place called the Magic Attic. And that sounds like a nightclub in the 1970s, but it's not. It's a uh, it's a place in Swatlinko, which has got every Burton mail that's been printed, in, and they've got it in physical form, since about 1910. Okay. Wow. So it's an incredible repository of newspapers, local newspapers. Absolutely. Absolutely amazing place. I could spend weeks in there quite happily. So every now and again, when I've got a chance to, I'll go down down there for two hours and just immerse myself in papers. Obviously, what I'm trying to do is find anything that relates to this poor man who got found in 1971. So that's obviously that's the project I'm working on. And so I just surround myself with anything that might have anything to do with that. So I was doing that yesterday and I thought I'd seen everything in relation to this case because I've been working on it for a couple of years but I found an article in the paper which was dated about 10 weeks after the body was found so June 1971 uh, by which time you're two years away from from the uh, from Burton or from Winsor yeah in that article there was something really interesting. And what it said was that the police had been in contact with the Australian police. And I thought, that's odd. But the reason they said they were in contact with the Australian police, and, and you're probably two steps ahead of me and you shouldn't be, so it's nothing to do with your dad or anything like that. It's the reason they were in contact with, with the Australian police was about the dentistry of this body now did i ever mention to you that the dentistry on this body was highly unusual you did 
yeah it's highly unusual he had uh, quite significant denture work and the materials that were used in the denture work were considered at the time not to be your standard national health dentistry well it seems that they thought that the dentistry might be Australian Maybe. You might be able to answer a question on that. Did Australia have a kind of a national health service with dentistry on it? Was all dentistry no. private in Australia? No. All, all, all dentistry is private still. Okay. Um, if you are a pensioner or somebody on a low income, you can go on a list for um, the, the public health service dent dentistry, but yeah. it takes three or four years unless you're actually in pain. Okay. Okay. So, well, that's interesting because this was private dental work, not not what we call NHS dental work in the UK. Right. So that would, that would be somebody who could afford to get private dental work done. Yeah. And it was expensive work, this, this and therefore someone who, who took a great deal of interest in their appearance. In their appearance. It might be possible that he had um, insurance. It was possible when we arrived here to take out health and dental insurance yeah. and have, have a, a certain amount of things paid for by that. Let me read you that article. Mm -hmm. So I, I've got a photograph of it. I'm going to read it to you. It's going to take two minutes, this, but I want you to, I want you to listen to this. So headlines, Burton Riverside body mystery. Uh, Australian police are asked to help. But bear in mind, this is 10 weeks after the body's found. So very very soon after Australian police are cooperating with Staffordshire and Stoke-on-Trent Constabulary in an effort to establish the identity of a young man whose body was recovered from a riverside grave at Burton 10 weeks ago the request for help from the police authorities down under was made by the head of Staffordshire and Stoke-on-Trent CID we received information that the dental work on the teeth of the dead man correspond with that done in Australia on a man who had emigrated from this country, he told Burton Daily Mail. We want to check, we want this information checked out to establish whether or not the man is still in Australia. Well, he's not, he's, he's dead on the side of the train. Uh, or if he returned to this country, which he must have done. So they must think the dentistry matches someone they know went to Australia. I don't know how they know that. Hmm. Uh, there would be, there would have been a limited number of dentists capable of doing the type of work that you described. So uh, it perhaps wouldn't have been that hard for the police to just call on each one. But if that's the case, then why haven't they come up with an identification? Well, they went through every dental practice in the UK with these very unusual dental records and there were no matches in the whole of the UK and they spent months and months and months on that. In fact, that's one of the reasons why they never solved it because they put all their resources into that because they thought they would be able to solve it through dental records. And that's a reasonable assumption because people are identified after being in plane crashes through dental records. So it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good way of, of identifying people, but no one came up. Now that process took years that took process literally took two or three years uh 
but even but only 10 weeks into this investigation they seem to think that dentistry and australia were connected i'd never seen that before and i think it's significant Absolutely. now one obvious question is did your dad and what i'm getting to here did they think your dad was dead is what i'm thinking and did your dad have dentures he had dental work, but his dental work had been done um, in Eastern Europe, most of it. Uh, I believe some was done in Poland, some in, and some in Czechoslovakia after the war. Okay. But yes, he had a bridge and he had some caps. Um, they may have thought it was your dad. I wouldn't think so, because 10 weeks after that body was found, my father would have been in contact, or my mother would have been in contact with people in England. So finding out that he was he was alive would have been fairly simple. Yeah. In fact, around 1971, I think, was the time when I rang Helen in in, in, uh, in Burton. So it might not have been that hard to track, track that down. Yeah. However, I have a vague memory that somebody else from Burton went to Victoria. I'm just trying to think when the stones came out here. That would have been around... A, 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 yeah, that was a, a year or two after we came out, so it would have been probably 70, 71 when they emigrated. Okay. And they were Burton, of course. Yeah. But what, what I'm particularly interested in, I'm interested in all of this, but uh, that pattern of what your dad had done in terms of, you know, he had, he had dentist, d- dental work done, but it was not done in the UK. And I know it's not your dad there, but it, but it's, it sounds like someone very like your dad i.e. someone who had similar kind of dental work done at a similar kind of time. The only other thing, by the way, when this person was killed, and that would have been between summer 69 and summer 1970, that person had had quite extensive dental work done. So within six months of being killed, he'd had extensive dental work. So he was someone perhaps who had been to Australia and then come back. Yeah, and possibly someone like your dad, from an Eastern European heritage. Hmm. I wish dad was still alive. So do I. the guy's name. That, that sort of fits in a little bit because I have a vague memory that the young man that we gave the lift to, um, that would have been, I believe, the, 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 probably after Easter but before summer in 69. So if it's the same young person, um, that is a possibility. It could that could quite well be because that was about the time that my parents decided to emigrate. Yeah. And that is just a possibility because it was shortly after that that, we, that my mother and I went went to Germany basically to you know take our farewells of, of the family over there. Although nobody told me what was going on. Yeah, that's right. I remember you telling me about that. So what what month did you and your mum go over then? It was the middle of summer. So it would have been, what, June-ish? Something like that? June, July, somewhere around there. Of, of 69? Yeah. Did the police ever try and track you lot down? Did they ever... Did I'm talking the British police. Did they ever talk to Frank Not and say, Frank, do you know of. this person? Um, and, and I think that would have been something that would have been discussed at home. Oh, yeah. I thought so. Um, I, I, I would think... I mean, sometimes my parents didn't tell me things. Um, yeah, of course. And, yeah. I, and I didn't necessarily know about them until years later. But that's the sort of thing that I would have heard about, I think, if, if, if it had happened. So I don't believe they did. 
I do have a vague memory of Mr. Rowland ringing my dad. Who's Mr. Rowland? And I don't remember. That would, he lived on the corner opposite the mill. On one side there were, there were the garages and then there was a, a fairly large house. It had a lovely garden and, and, and I think my dad used to, used to help him pruning his trees and okay. stuff like that because he was getting quite, up, quite elderly. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Um, but he used to, every year, he always brought us a bottle of sherry for Christmas. <laughs> my parents hated sherry. <laughs> you should have told him. Well, I think they were too polite to do so. Oh, that's... Now, just one other thing just to mention about, about this dentistry, which I don't think I've ever mentioned before, but is in, really important in terms of who this young man might be. He had a very significant underbite. Now, what do I mean by that? It's where the lower jaw juts out. It's sometimes called a Habsburg jaw because the Habsburg dynasty in Europe they had this, actually it was a bit of a facial deformity, where their lower jaw, the, the lower mandible, juts out much further than the, the top one. It's very rare. Well, I say rare. It affects about 4% of Caucasian people. So it is quite rare, much, much rarer than an overbite, which is quite common. But this man, the body, had an underbite, which is rare. So he would have given the impression facially having a jutting out lower jaw now don't think i've ever mentioned that to you but it's, it is quite important so in your recollections of anyone of the time does that ring any bells really is what i'm asking well i'm thinking about the young fellow that we don't live to and um, um i would have said he had a strong face a determined face so perhaps that that would, would qualify as, as an underbite yeah it wasn't it wasn't a disfigurement in the sense of it wasn't to that degree he was a handsome young man obviously i, I was 11 years old I, I wasn't really looking at that but do you have any idea which which branch of the australian police were contacted no the only thing i know is what i found in the paper yesterday that that tv show cold case was very popular here yeah. So if if you were to um, get get in touch with the Australian Dental Association, um, I'm pretty certain that you'd find that, that they'd be quite happy to try and give you a hand. That's a really good idea, Zoe. My dad had been to the dentist and had X-rays in Burton, so they should have been able to compare those with with the body and found find that they were different because they would have been. But I know my dad had to have his bridge repaired there and here. Um, the one that was done on the NHS only lasted about, about five years. Uh, whereas the one that he had done in, in Eastern Europe was lasted about 20. He was, he was quite disgusted when he had to go to the dentist again here in Australia to get the bridge work repaired again. It strikes me it's, it's the sort of thing that, um, that, that people might get their teeth into. Uh, pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah. So, the, just, just go back to the start of this then, is... So there's, there's no one that you were aware of who went to Australia, kind of came back a couple of times and then went back and... Look, you, you, you've got something tickling in the back, back of my mind, so maybe there was somebody who had been to Australia and come back because they didn't like it here. A vague, 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 vague sort of thing in the back of my mind. I don't know, I'll, I'll have, to, have to put it in that, yeah. Little man's hunches 
Yeah, do that because that normally pays dividends. I like your vague memories. They normally, they normally, they're normally important. God, God knows what a precise memory it would be like, but the vague ones are pretty good. <laughs> well, I think as you get older, you tend to remember your childhood better than what happened last week. Yeah, I think that's true. It certainly works for me. Now, my dad explained that to me in in an odd way once upon a time. Uh, probably five or six years before he died, he said, time goes faster when you're older. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's because your experience of time is very subjective. And when you're 70, um, a year is only a 70th of your year. But when you're 10, it's, it's a whole tenth of your, of, your, of your life. Yeah, so that makes sense, yeah. When you're 70, it seems to go... You know, seven times faster than it does when, when you're 10. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And I, th- I think also, when, if you're having lots of new experiences, it makes time go slow. When you're just experiencing things you've always experienced before, time goes quickly. And I think, I think those, that's all part of the same thing, really. But I think that's true. Hey, look, that's been really useful. It's always useful. Always useful speaking to you. But I just thought when I established that there was this weird Australian thing, there was no one better to talk to than you about it. Well, it, it, it would it would be a very interesting thing um, if if the, um, the the dental records matched somebody in Australia at, at that time. Why on earth wouldn't they name the person? I don't know. I don't. But there's a lots of mysteries about the police investigation on this side of the water. Would that be because he was possibly. And we, and we, as we suggested, perhaps a female impersonator, and they, and they were, they became aware of that or something. Could be, could be oh, anything. Could it be that the police know knew more than they let on? Hey, anyway, mm. that's been useful. I've got some stuff to do now in terms of uh, dentist, dental associations in Australia. But if you think of anything, keep write it down, keep it in the back of your mind. I'll probably give you a ring in a couple of weeks. Yep, no worries. Well, I, I hope that um, the, the dental association will help you out. I well, don't see why they shouldn't. It's always fascinating to speak with Zoe. She's always so incredibly open and helpful. But as always with these conversations, I'm often left with more questions than answers. But there are a couple of things that struck me in that conversation that I think might be worth just raising. The first thing is the amazing similarity between Frank's dentistry and the body's dentistry. I wasn't expecting that. What a bizarre coincidence. So Frank had extensive dental work. He had a plate. He had lots of caps. It was done not in the UK. Now who does that remind you of? And part of me thinks that the police must have got wind of Frank's emigration to Australia, checked his dental records somewhere, and seen these similarities and therefore contacted the Australian police to check that Frank was still alive. But the problem with that explanation is that it doesn't quite fit. Firstly, the Kun family seemed to be in contact with people in Winds Hill when they were in Australia. Staffordshire police wouldn't need to go through Interpol to find out where he was. And there's a second oddity and an important one, and this is going to take some explanation and some concentration on your part. Think about what the trigger was 
for why the police were seeking to contact the Australian police. It was dental records. And they believed, if we trust what's in the newspaper, that they were dealing with Australian dentistry. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the dental records, which must have been from a dentist and must have been dated, must have indicated that some work was done in Australia. Now, that means that person must have come back from Australia, seen a dentist, and then maybe went back or maybe stayed. But we know before the emigration, Frank had never been to Australia. So we needed someone to have been to Australia to come back and to see a dentist. That can't be Frank. But it does leave us with this strange mystery. Why is Frank's dental records so close to the body's dental records? It's a mystery we've got to do some more digging into. And there's a couple of other things I feel I should point out from that interview that I think might be important. And I know some people think I'm putting Frank in the frame for this. I'm trying not to. I'm trying to keep an open mind on this. I have no idea whether Frank was involved yet. And it's very sensible not to jump to conclusions. And I'd encourage you not to jump to conclusions. But sometimes, occasionally, you hear things that just make your ears prick up. And that happened a couple of times in this interview. Zoe told me something new in that conversation. She told me that they had applied to Canada, South Africa and Australia when they were looking to emigrate. Now, I knew they discussed other places apart from Australia, but not that they'd applied to each one. And I didn't know that the only reason they picked Australia was that it came through first. That strikes me as really odd. Now, Going to Australia worked out well for them, but choosing to go to Australia simply because it came through the quickest. What's that all about? Why were they so desperate to get to the other side of the world as far away from Windsill as possible in the shortest possible time? If Canada had come through first, they would have gone to Canada. If South Africa had come through first, they would now be speaking with a South African accent but they went to Australia it does strike me as strange that the main criteria for choosing the place to go and spend the rest of your life was was which letter they got back from the embassy first that's weird the other thing is that for the first time we get a definitive time for that lift from the hairdressers to the level with the young man spring 1969 and we also get a definitive time for when Zoe and her mother Valtraud go to Europe leaving Frank on his own that was June or July 69 18 months before the body was found now it's never wise to jump to conclusions we don't know the full story yet there's probably many more twists and turns before this story reaches its final conclusion but it did get me thinking and as always I'm leaving this episode with more work to do. This Australian connection has got me thinking. And at the moment, I've no idea where that's going to take us. Well, that's part of the interest of the journey, isn't it? But I've got a feeling we'll know a few more things before the next episode. So until next time, have a good one.
The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.